This is the podcast for Indelible, a documentary in progress for the week of April 3rd, 2018. Last Monday, March 26th, 2018, I received an email regarding my request for the 1979 trial records of the survivor kid of dark pool or mercenary training by those revered by the U.S. military special forces personnel. His name is Artie Ray Dufer. At the time of his trial, his name was Artie Ray Baker, and at the time of his arrest, it was uh, Michael J. or Michael Joseph Arrington. He went. Ha- he had multiple names at the time because of his training. He had multiple false IDs. I had sent my request to the national, to the Seattle National Archives the week prior to this email. The email from the quote-unquote reference desk for both the National Archives and the Federal Records Center, they are both housed in the same building in Seattle, described what was in the boxes, stating they had been pulled and that they were ready to be viewed. I called the archivist to ask about the viewing. In the email, it stated that... uh, One of the boxes was full of transcripts. So I think that's important to note that. I spoke to Patty, an archivist for the National Archives, not the Federal Records Center, who referred to the email and told me that the address and location of the National Archives reading room, where they could be viewed, and that I could scan the pages with my camera on my phone. So I got ready to leave. But before I did, I emailed the kid survivor in prison to let him know just in case he wanted any particular pages from his own trial record. This is his trial record. Thirty minutes later, before he could have gotten the email, it takes one and a half hours for an email to reach an inmate's inbox as they go through a security review. Um, the email uh, company is called CoreLinks, so you send email via CoreLinks when you're emailing a prisoner. They make a profit off of that, the federal prisons do, so just want to add that. Anyway, um, so 30 minutes later, I received another email stating that the documents could only be viewed at the federal courthouse. So it seems someone viewed my email to the inmate and alerted the federal court. There is nothing illegal about viewing this public record or in emailing the inmate about it. It's his record. I called the archivist and in a distressed voice, she told me this was now true and I asked her to look up info about the records, which she did. The receptionist who answered the phone, Linnea, had told me while we waited on hold that the case document archive record said, quote-unquote, pending agency action. This means action by the federal court. The federal court was the agency who had originally had control of that record. This was of a concern, and this is why I asked Patty, the archivist, to look up information about it once I was able to reach her on the phone. 
I now know she likely used the Arcus system, and that's A-R-C-I-S, Arcus system, to do so, and that she luckily thought out loud as she looked at the Form 135, which to my shock stated the documents were coded as a quote-unquote non-trial case and so slated to be destroyed. The documents were a transcript of the trial, I said to her. No, there was no trial, she said emphatically, because the court coded it as no trial. This began a week-long battle with the keepers of information in the federal court in Seattle and the FRC side of the archives to correct this coding and to learn why had these documents been slated for destruction and what were the public's rights to this information, including my rights. In the end, it appeared I won this one small battle, at least in words, but not without a significant effort the help of an attorney, a congressional staffer who once served on the House Intelligence Committee overseeing the NSA, and enduring insults and attacks by employees of the federal court who preferred to also believe that I must be in the wrong merely for questioning. And I was told by Shelley at the court, the clerk's office, that I asked too many questions, or Sherry, excuse me, not Shelley, by Sherry the clerk's office. After a week of persistence, the director of the National Archives side, not the FRC side, FRC meaning Federal Records Center side, in Seattle, Sue Karen wrote to me, and she said, quote, Thank you for your patience. We certainly appreciate that it is through your efforts the case is now correctly identified as permanent and will eventually be legally transferred to the National Archives at Seattle for permanent retention. Sincerely, Susan Karen. I think it is important to understand what steps it took to reverse this wrongful action initiated by the federal government employees to destroy an important historical document, historical trial document, and to attempt to inhibit access by someone, me, <laughs> doing research on a documentary project. It is also important to understand the context in which this occurs. During my research for the Indelible Project, other documents have been destroyed in archives soon after I sought them. One of the former kids in this story was Carl Harp. He was murdered in 1981, soon after he was to get a new trial, which would have freed him from prison. His prison records stored in the DOC, Department of Corrections Archives, were destroyed soon after I sought them, and that was 40 years later. All his peers in prison at the same time had their documents preserved. Harp's death certificate was altered six months after his death. It had the date of death changed to match the date his body was illegally cremated four months after his murder without the approval of his wife, and without proper permits. The document which would show who made this change, called an affidavit of correction, was found. I was told about it by employees of Washington State Department of Health, but when I requested it formally, I was told it could no longer be found in the archives. My father's autopsy report could not be located in the archives. It states on his death certificate there was an autopsy, 
He was only 51 at the time of his death, so that makes sense there was an autopsy. Nor could the last doctor who treated him be found in the archives. A doctor's medical license information is stored in the archives. And there is more. Certainly, it is clear that the FBI has worked to inhibit my accessing Harp's FBI file, or that of my father or myself, when I was a professor at CMU. And this was uh, made very clear through my FOIA request and then the later FOIA lawsuit. And the federal court has certainly helped the effort to conceal this information as well. So it is not new that information is disappeared by the state and federal government regarding those in this project. But because of these efforts, I have learned steps to take to prevent it. But it is more than any strategies I learned which allowed me to succeed in this one small victory. It was a more complicated set of circumstances. Remember, this is allegedly an era of government transparency, but clearly that is a misnomer just a phrase used to cover up the fact that there is wholesale destruction of facts of history going on. But it's my experience and belief that if we persist to support what is right for all people, accidents will happen to protect facts and histories some try to hide. In this small story about the trial docs of the kid survivor, it was such an accident that occurred. And then the right people showed up to help. It's a history that deserves to be told. So here it is. First of all, it's important to be aware of time frames. I received an email on Monday, March 26th, that the docs were to be sent to the federal courthouse, and that if I wanted to view them, I would need to contact them, contact the courthouse. Wasn't told who, just contact the courthouse. From how long it took to return the docs back to the archives recently, I now know this can occur the same day or within one business day. So by Tuesday, the 27th, the federal court had possession of these trial docs. I learned from records from three conversations they had been in the archives since 1982. So these trial documents allegedly had been in the archives since 1982, meaning that they had been transferred from the courthouse to the archives in 1982. According to the National Archives, who own documents and executives at other regional national archives, criminal case records are usually released from control of the court and placed in the National Archives, who then take legal ownership of them after 15 years once they are transferred. So initially the court owns them, and then they're transferred after a few years to the Federal Records Center, which is a National Archives, but it has it's owned by the court. The court oversees the records. They still own, they still have ownership of the documents. They're in the Federal Records Center side of the archives. But then after 15 years, according to these executives and according to their own website, their information, they are then transferred in their ownership to the National Archives side of things. And the National Archives 
owns them and maintains them. So we have the Federal Records Center side, where records are owned by the courts or whatever agency originated, where the records originated. And then we have the National Archives, which is a place where things are stored permanently and usually after 15 years. So in 1997, the court would have relinquished ownership of this trial record to the National Archives for permanent retention. This is a formal legal process with a paper trail. I was told by Rob Richards, the executive, not the executive, the director at the Atlanta National Archives, that once relinquished, in no circumstances will the National Archives allow the documents to be sent back under control of the agency, in the, and in this case, it was the federal court. So in no circumstances, the only circumstance they would do this, would they let the court uh, have contr- any control over them, would be if a judge ordered it, say, as, in the, in, as evidence in a new trial, but then they would only be on loan for a maximum of 30 days. So once they're transferred to the archives, they have very tight controls on those records. They take their ownership role very seriously. The court just can't yank them back for any particular reason. The fact I was told I could view the documents on Monday in the National Archives reading room, not in the Federal Records Center reading room because they don't have one anymore. Okay, So I was told that I could view the documents on Monday in the National Archives reading room in Seattle and scan them with my camera. This showed that they were very likely National Archives records at that point, so under National Archives ownership. But that an effort was made by the Federal Records Center in Seattle and the National Archives in Seattle to conceal this fact. And also, um, as part of that effort, was the federal court. So the federal court and the Federal Records Center worked together, it looks like, to conceal the fact that those records had ever been transferred to the National Archives side. Fortunately, the archivist on Monday morning forgot to follow this strategy and told the truth allowing me access. So she had the email in front of her. She's worked there for a long time. She knew what side um, the, those documents resided on, and uh, she described to me how I could access them. If, in fact, they had been on the federal records side, she would have told me I couldn't access them, and I had to gain access by going to the courthouse, having the courthouse retrieve them, and then going to the courthouse, but she didn't say that, and um, it's, it's pretty hard to make that kind of a mistake. It would be highly unusual for this old trial record to still be owned by the federal court after 39 years. Highly unusual, according to the director of the other regional office and, other, and the uh, documents on the National Archives uh, website, which describe ownership. And there is no record of why this occurred um, that's being offered, I should say, (laughs) at this point. I was told by executives at the National Archives that the retention of ownership 
by the court past 15 years only occurs if the case is still ongoing. And in this case, it ended in 1979. Or as I said, if the uh, a federal judge orders the retrieval of that case on loan for 30 days because of some issue, say a, say a pending court action, a new court action. But by Monday, the 26th of March, I was told by the clerk of the federal court in Seattle, Bill McCool, that he had requested the retrieval of these documents from the archive and that I would be told when I could view them at the federal courthouse. Regarding their wrongful coding as being a non-trial case and so slated for destruction, I was told the clerk and a judge would make that determination to correct the coding if it needed to be corrected and that I could have no input and that I asked too many questions. And I was told this by Sherry at the clerk's office. And it was clear that I was um, I was someone who um, was not welcome to um, request any information from this point on from the clerk's office. At this point, I was in a state of shock and it seemed like pure gaslighting. A trial document being coded no trial being told I could view them, and then being told the court had control. It should be noted that to view them in the archives and scan them with my camera was free. To go to the court meant I had to pay hundreds of dollars to transfer the boxes, which was later waived as the transfer occurred before I made a request to view them at the court and was done when the court had decided to take possession of them. But I was also going to have to pay 50 cents a page for copies. This would impact what I chose to copy. And there were over 1,200 pages. I had to have copies as my transcribing, merely transcribing, would be able to be questioned if my credibility was questioned. And as we've seen as part of this um, history of this, working on this documentary, I mean, that's my own history as a... um, at Carnegie Mellon, I mean, that's one of the main first things they do is to question your credibility if you start to question anything about uh, actions, wrongful actions of the government. I called the reporters committee as I was eligible for attorney's help because of this obfuscation. And this was clearly, as you know, it was clearly a violation of open government practices. On Tuesday, the 27th, I gave them the facts of what was occurring, but they never really provided any help. It became clear that uh, they weren't doing anything, um, but yet there was a clear violation of law, so it was very, uh, just as, you know, confusing, just added to the confusion, really. But by sheer accident, I came across the name of another attorney, and he was in Seattle, And he and his colleagues were working to hold the FBI accountable in an old 1981 set of murders in Seattle. And he had just written a book, so he understood these kinds of processes. Um, He took the simple action of Googling the appeal for this um, trial, and so confirmed it was a trial. (laughs) Took him about two minutes. And then he called the clerk, Bill McCool, and after calling him, he called me back and told me that McCool told him 
that he only retrieved the documents from the National Archives to see if it was a trial or not, not because I had to view them there. This was not what McCool had told me or his clerk underlings. I then remembered Diane Rourke, and that's R-O-A-R-K, Diane Rourke. She had been a congressional staffer at the House Intelligence on the House Intelligence Committee, whose job it was to oversee the NSA. She knew laws regarding information storage and retrieval, and she lived in the Northwest. She'd also become a whistleblower when the federal government tried to conceal their wrongful collection of private data on U.S. citizens by the NSA. So I called, and she just happened to answer. I described what happened, that the trial records were yanked from the National Archives, and the federal court was claiming ownership and control, and she said clearly, they can't do this. It is a violation of a 2009 executive order, number 13526. And she pretty much just rattled that off from memory. I looked it up and I read it and I could see what she was talking about. Specifically in that section addresses the National Archives. After talking to executives at the National Archives, I knew she was correct. By this time, it was the end of the week and the court had been in possession of the trial documents for five days. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FRC side of the archives in Seattle, who clearly were trying to support the court's actions, and they were misstating facts to do so. The FOIA asked for documents regarding the transfer of these trial documents and communication about them between the court and the archive staff. I learned there was a director for the FRC side and one for the National Archives side. The FRC director in Seattle had failed to inform me of this. The FRC side deals with the court records before they are released to the archive side, so they work under the control or the auspices of the courts or any agency whose records they are. Sue Karen, the director on the archive side, told me she had been informed of the issues at, the, at a meeting that morning about the records I was seeking and all of the complexities. She seemed very reasonable, and she expressed concern. She said it was her hope that Mr. McCool at the courthouse, the clerk at the courthouse, would provide a written statement allowing the documents to be returned and for Mr. Excuse me, and for me to view and scan them at the archives for no cost. I told her what the attorney said, that Mr. McCool said his only reason for taking possession was to check to see if it was a trial record, not because I needed to view them there. She did not want to hear from the attorney about this. I said that you know she could contact him, contact him and confirm this, but she stated these records would be protected. And I told her what Diane Rourke had said as well about the violation based on that executive order. By Monday morning, this last Monday, April 2nd, the records had been returned to the National Archives, and I was told by Sue Karen that I could view them there, and that in addition, they had decided that they would be permanent records. There was no admission that they had previously been part of the National Archives, which is clearly very likely the case. 
but that once Diane Rourke pointed out the citation of law which made the federal court's action by taking control again illegal, they likely had to claim they had always been part of the FRC side of the archives since 1982. But this is highly unlikely and would be way out of the ordinary since most cases, except in exceptional circumstances when there's an order by the court, are only retained on the Federal Research Center side for 15 years. So it's very, very, very unlikely. But the fact that Mr. McCool told the attorney he only yanked them back to recode them to being a permanent document that there was a trial shows he was aware of the wrongful act he had committed by claiming control over their access. What is important to note is that the federal courthouse had possession of these docs for five days. They could have confirmed it was a trial for recording purposes by looking, or recoding purposes, by looking up the docket which they were in possession of. So they, they're the ones with the docket for that case. They have the records of that. And I confirmed this from the uh, director of the FRC. And he put this in writing. They're the ones with the, with the docket record. Or they could have Googled the appeal, as the attorney did. But they did not. Nor did they call me when they received them on Monday or Tuesday to view them at the courthouse which if that was their purpose, you know, they could have just called me on Monday or Tuesday, hey, we got the documents and you can view them now. And they said they were going to do this, right? But instead they waited until Friday. It was last Friday, March 30th, when I, March 30th, when I heard from Shelley in the clerk's office at the federal courthouse that I could come to view the documents at the court. It seems that the reason to take possession of the documents was to view them by some other authority in the federal courthouse. And it's my concern that some of the documents may now be missing. Clearly something happened in those five days at the courthouse. My concern about this is because in the weeks prior to my requesting the records, I had been researching the case and looking at news articles and talking to a former federal agent who was a major witness at the shooting of the customs officer. I also interviewed Dufers, or Bakers at that time, defense lawyers, and I had learned that it was possible that there was criminal involvement by the officers involved in that incident. So um, meaning federal agents, the federal agents, and, and not just Dufer, but, but agents associated with that death of the uh, federal officer. The agents were one of the agents, the, the main witness of the um, in that case was a, a drug enforcement federal agent. And this is a, a border incident. The man who was killed was a, a customs officer, a 34-year-old customs officer. This pointed to motive for wanting to keep the former kid survivor in prison as well. Um, past the expiration of his sentence. And the expiration of his sentence was in 2016. And uh, it's the Department of Homeland Security that has, and who has tried to do this, and including these officers who, uh, you know, were involved during the time of the shooting. They're the ones that organized that effort to keep him in prison. And it, he's being illegally held in prison past the expiration of his sentence. Two years now past the expiration. 
There were also false statements by the defense attorney about the former kid's mercenary training before the age of 16 during the trial in the opening and closing, which, according to the Innocence Project executive director who I spoke with, could mitigate his sentence, meaning that his sentence could have been much less, but still, um, clearly, it's very odd that the his own defense attorney's misrepresented facts to the jury about his training, even though there was a, a report by a psychiatrist about his training, and it says even in the news articles about his training um, by the uh, by this uh, a former mercenary, by this former uh, person, this former uh, special forces person. We'll be curious to see if that report is, that psychiatrist report is still part of the record. I have a feeling it's going to be missing. So there are many people who work for the government who were involved in the shooting and the faulty defense who had motive to keep some aspects of this information from ever coming to light. So will documents be missing? Like I said, very likely. But the effort to conceal information reveals the truth. So even if information's missing and uh, you can no longer confirm some of the things that were stated in the newspaper articles, this... uh, really convoluted effort to conceal the documents and conceal access to them points to what the truth is. So um, that, that in itself is meaningful. I don't know why they don't ever learn about that or learn from that. That's all I have for tonight.